Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. I'm really pleased today to bring you an in-depth conversation about one of the movies that has gotten an Academy Award nomination for Best Sound this year. I'm talking about Steven Spielberg's film, West Side Story. And I'm particularly delighted that all five of the nominees in the category this year have joined us for this conversation. And it is a pretty astoundingly accomplished group of nominees. Uh, Among the five of them, they have an amazing 52 Academy Award nominations. So let's dive right in. We're going to talk today with uh, Supervising Sound Editor Brian Chumney, who is celebrating his very first Academy Award nomination for West Side Story. Todd Maitland, who is the production sound mixer on the film, and he is getting his fifth nomination for West Side Story. Sean Murphy, the scoring mixer, uh, who has four nominations and one Academy Award win. Andy Nelson, the re-recording mixer for the film, with his 22nd Academy Award nomination to go along with two previous Oscar wins for sound. And finally, Gary Rydstrom, the supervising sound editor, sound designer, and re-recording mixer on the film, who is celebrating his 20th nomination, and that goes along with his astounding seven previous Academy Award wins for sound work. And uh, if you're a longtime follower of these fellows, you know that uh, especially Gary and Andy have had a very long time collaboration with Steven Spielberg. Um, Gary's uh, uh, collaboration goes all the way back to the early 90s uh, and uh, films like Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan. So it was really a treat to put this team together. Steven Spielberg, obviously a legendary director and someone who has been talking for a long time about wanting to do a musical. He finally got to do it with West Side Story. But I started off the conversation by asking each one of these uh, just legends in our business what their relationship was with the original 1961 uh, version of West Side Story, which was directed by Robert Wise, and, and how that movie uh, influenced the approach to the new film. Well, I think like a lot of people, when I was even growing up, I was surrounded by everyone had the album. So the and 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 the '61 movie was very popular. So it for me, it was one of those. Everyone, even people who didn't like musicals, loved West Side Story because it was cool. And um, and I was excited when I heard that Stephen was doing West Side Story. I because you know he can do a musical beautifully. The scary thing was I did I wasn't worried, but the scary thing was not only did he choose to do a musical, he chose to do probably the most respected and beloved, <laughs> and beloved iconic and yeah. iconic and probably the best music. I mean, Sean might, I don't know. I think it's the best music ever written for a musical. So and, and some of the most difficult and difficult. So, I mean, my, that was kind of thrilling. Like, okay. We're not just doing a musical. We're doing West side story. So everyone kind of, you know, tenses up and go, okay, we have to do a good job because this is, you know, it's, it's history. It's, you know, this is a really iconic piece of material that uh, you don't want to, uh, you, you want to, to do as good a job as you can for. So that was my fear and uh, ex- excitement at the same time. Here's the, the, the irony for me is that that was the first film I was ever taken to as a kid in London by my older brother. And I remember it well, A, because I'd never sat in a movie theater before, and B, because, uh, look, I didn't fully understand the story. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I was pretty young. But it was just the, the essence of the movie that captured me. And I said to Stephen when we were working on it, you know, this is, this is weird because this is the first movie I ever saw. And he was sort of, you know, taken aback by that. And um, so I, 
I've watched it many times over the years and never imagined that I would start to work on, you know, that, that story. So when Stephen first announced it, and uh, I was just uh, so excited because I've always loved working on musicals. I've had a lot of chance to work on different musicals over the years and have learned an awful lot. But um, I felt that I just had a feeling this one was going to be very special. And um, he and I actually got a chance to discuss a little bit about some of the experience I'd had on other musicals um, while we were in New York uh, um, running another movie. And uh, we talked for about half an hour about just, you know, some of the things I've found about the live recordings versus the playbacks and how to, how, how it was, uh, you know, to tackle certain things. Not, not, you know, he clearly he's an extraordinary director, but he was just amazing because he was very interested and open to listen to ideas and thoughts. And, um, so for me, it was just going full circle back from that first sitting in the movie theatre in London as a kid to actually starting to watch the, the new version on the screen. So it was very magical for me. Well, my father is a sound mixer, so he always loved that movie. So I grew up with it, and then I forced my kids to watch it. They'd probably seen it a good seven or eight times. So I was really I, – I always loved it. And then my first connection was really on the screen test. So I did screen tests for Tony, Maria, and Bernardo. And at the end – and I think that Stephen was actually screen testing me at the same time because he would watch me going back and forth and muting the piano and adjusting a mic here and there. And that's – and he offered me the job at the end of that day. So it was kind of really a wonderful day. I was like in front of everybody too. It was really – it was uh, quite lovely. Well, it, it you know it's uh, of course we, uh, like we say we all know the the uh, iconic uh, classic film version, uh, and the stories are, were abounding all the time. Uh, uh, years later, that uh, Leonard Bernstein had had seen and heard the uh, enlarged orchestration of that version and and didn't care for it. You know there are there are interviews online and stories online that talk about that. And uh, uh, so, so those of us in the music world, we're all familiar with this, and the and the, the opportunity to kind of jump onto a new West Side Story production where we could revisit the fantastic composition and orchestration uh, was just it just a too good to be true opportunity. Uh, uh, knowing, you know, the the I actually worked with Irv Kostel, one of the orchestrators, and knew Sid Raymond, one of the other orchestrators, um, and and you know have always just regarded the score as, uh, you know, the best of, of all Broadway musicals, you know, one of the most difficult, one of the most iconic, uh, and and uh, a lot of people's favorite. Uh, so when, when the opportunity came around that, that uh, you know, Stephen was doing this and I could possibly record the music, I, I you know, tried, tried my best, because I recorded a lot of scores for Stephen, but this is his first musical, as we know. And uh, wanted to make sure I was at least in the running for it, and luckily um, and, and happily, that was the case. Uh, because uh, uh, you know, I, I had plans for doing this, uh, you know, as best as it could possibly be recorded and presented. Uh, and 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 the the goal was to hear things in the score and in the orchestration that uh, were never heard before. You know, things that were kind of a new window on this music and a, and a way to hear it uh, dramatically and musically that was going to be a, a enlightenment, you know, a, a better way to hear it. I think I think all of us succeeded in that regard. Shauna, I'd love to kind of just dig in a little bit more about what you were talking about, because I've, I've read those kind of those 
uh, uh, reports as well that Leonard Bernstein, who obviously is a composer of the film, uh, the, the music for the Broadway musical and the film, uh, obviously with lyrics by uh, the legendary late Stephen Sondheim. Um, I had heard that too, that, that Mr. Bernstein was not thrilled with the music in the film version, but what, can you tell us a little bit more about, do, you, do we have any idea about what he responded to in it? And then did that affect how you guys approached, how did it affect how you approached the music for this version of the film? Well, it, it did directly. I mean, the stories all go, and, and I wasn't there obviously, but the stories all go that, it, you know, the, the Broadway, original Broadway show was a 35, 36 piece pit band, which is a large, a large band for a Broadway and much show. Much larger than you have in Broadway pits nowadays, for sure. Much, much larger than now. Or, but even then it was a large, a large band. And, um, and the orchestrations were written for that size group. Uh, uh, five woodwind doublers, a small string section, a rhythm section, and so forth. Uh, when it went to Hollywood, you know, I mean, to say it was it was Hollywoodized is a is a you know a, a term that, you know, everything got bigger, you know, it's a big screen presentation. It was a seventy millimeter type thing, uh, you know, uh, big string section, big percussion, big brass. Everything got big, 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 and I think with that, uh, a loss came about in terms of the intimacy and the detail of the of the of the show of the music. And I think Bernstein, a lot of the stories center around him, him thinking that it was overblown, that everything was just bigger than life and overblown and, and, and not so musical. Um, knowing this, and I think Stephen, of course, knew all of this. Stephen knows everything about all, all of his projects. Uh, the approach, even though we didn't want to throw out the baby, we, we wanted to have the best of the film version available to us. Uh, he asked David Newman to go back and examine both the Broadway show and the film version and excerpt the best of both. And, and what happened was mostly we based our recordings on the Broadway versions with a larger string section so that we act, we fill the screen in current day, but we actually are back down to one, to a part when one, to a part was, is appropriate. So the woodwinds, uh, despite the fact that we had the New York Philharmonic and a great orchestra, Still, when it called for a single bassoon, it was one bassoon. When it called for a single bass clarinet, it was a bass clarinet. When it, you know, nothing was doubled up, nothing was made bigger other than just the string numbers to fill out the the size and the voicing in the string section. So we basically, for the most part, dealt with the Broadway arrangements played by a larger orchestra to fill the screen, and and in that we were able to retain a lot of the nuances and detail that was originally written. Uh, and, and I think it was a great decision. Uh, now, so little, there are bits and pieces from the film that have been rearranged. Uh, again, Dave Newman went in and, and adapted those pieces for the size orchestra. And Dave is, you know, an expert on West Side Story and a great musician. So his work really did match up well with what we had from the Broadway show. And, and I think the results really were really, really good. I mean, it, it, it didn't overblow the screen. It didn't sound like it was a, you know, a, a uh, you know, a, a much expanded version of the Broadway show. It sounded like, uh, you know, a, a big screen version of of the Broadway show with all the detail maintained. So before we uh, before we move on and get into, I've got lots of questions about Todd for you about production capture and whatnot. But before we move on, Sean, I think this is the first time in all the years we've been doing this podcast that we've had a scoring mixer on the show to talk with us. And I, I couldn't, I can't think of a better instance or, or a, a better one to have on, but maybe for some of our audience who might not be familiar with that role, can you talk a little bit about what you do as the scoring mixer? Sure. Well, 
you know, my my part in it basically was to to take the music from uh, the original uh, inception of the recording process, which was choosing the venues for recording, choosing the crew for recording, which was going to be done in New York, choosing the the people I was going to work with in in uh, recording and post production, uh, specifying uh, aside from the venue, specifying the setup, specifying the microphone choices, specifying the recording format, and then basically being in charge of uh, all of the recording uh, and supervising the dialogue recording pre-records that was was then handed over along with Todd's recording for post-production, because every in a musical everything gets pre-recorded no matter what, whether it's going to be used or not. So so basically in charge of all all the music recording from beginning to end, and and uh, and I was lucky enough to stay with the project straight through editorial, straight through uh, mix downs that went to Andy and Gary, and uh, and then and. Any any notes or tidying up of mixes we could we could do together because I was in a room in the same building with them, doing my mixes. So uh, it was basically the ability to kind of carry the whole project from beginning to end uh, in the music department. Uh, the interesting reason why I'm here today is because the Academy has changed the nuance of the sound award, uh, and uh, com- by combining the editorial award and the mixing award into one. And that gave the sound branch an opportunity to look at the the participation of various uh, uh, people in the sound team and to submit the possible possibility of their nomination or their involvement in the Oscars uh, if they were a scoring mixer or perhaps if they were designed special sound effects or if they did some sort of special contribution to the project, they could be included. So this is really the the first time I'm aware of that uh, a scoring mixer actually has been nominated as a scoring mixer. Todd, I want to I want to turn to you for for just a minute. Uh, I, I feel like you've become Mister Musical, uh, and in, and in fact, you were just on this podcast. It feels like just a couple months ago when we had Lin Manuel on talking about Tick Tick Boom, which which was another just a, a fantastic film this year. Um, but I, I have a feeling that West Side Story was particularly challenging in terms of size and scale for you. A lot of big numbers with a lot of people on screen, a lot of mics. I'm sure. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, how you approached it, and what were the some of the specific challenges? I know you also had a lot of fun ex- experimenting with microphones on this. Yes. On this film. No. So this is my 11th musical, and without a doubt, the granddaddy of them all. You know, there's you know just so many characters. The moment that I read that script, I was like, this. You know, there are 22 characters, and they're singing, fighting, talking, jumping, you know, they're not, you know, they're not your normal sit around a table kind of scene. So I realized right from the beginning that I was going to have to actually put together a brand new sound cart. So we built from the ground up a cart with 30 channels of wireless where I could have all sorts of, all sorts of outputs going in all sorts of different directions and different mixes for different people. Um, and in New York City. So the, it's pretty much the idea is that we really recorded a Broadway show on the streets of New York. So that's how we had to prepare for it. And with Stephen, you really, there's no room for error. So you really want to double and make sure you do everything properly. So, so that was the first part was getting all of that together. And then the great thing is obviously is that Gary and Andy were on beforehand and we had conversations well in advance. And we even wrote Stephen a letter because We all love the sound of a boom microphone more than a lavalier. So, you know, for some of these singing pieces, we really wanted to do them on booms. And we wrote Stephen a letter saying, and 
saying that we would love to, on these certain moments, be able to get the boom into the shot and then paint it out. And Stephen wrote us back and said, there'll be no booms in the shot. <laughs> if you have to put a lavalier in there, we can put a lavalier in, which we did only once for the scene where Tony's singing as he's climbing the, as he's climbing the uh, fire escape up to Maria. That's the only time we had one on there. And the reason they let us do it then is because they had a safety rope on his back anyway. So they had to CGI that out. So one of the things as you alluded to is our microphones. And I've realized that lavaliers sound very different on every different actor. So what I do now before I start any film is I take an actor, have them come over to me and particularly on a musical and I'll set up seven different brands of lavaliers all at chest height. And I'll have my 416 boom microphone overhead, which I find closely mimics a studio microphone and I'll have the actors sing through it and I'll record them and then I'll go back and I'll AB them later. I'll find out which lavalier sounds the best on them, which matches the boom. And then that lavalier will follow that actor from all the way from vocal pre-records all the way through post-production. So it creates a real unity. And the whole idea of this movie is to make it real. You know, movies nowadays are, or musicals nowadays are not what they were even in the eighties. In the eighties, musicals were really, everybody still accepted the idea of canned singing. You know, when, you, when, it, came, when it came time to sing, it was gonna be lip sync, but now it's all about reality. So in creating that reality, you have to be able to transition from speaking on set to singing. And whether it's going into live singing or into pre-record singing, if it's pre-record singing, that's why we would, one of the reasons we would do that lavalier test. So now in, in the vocal pre-records, they would record with the boom, with the lavalier and with the big studio microphone, which gives Andy the choice then to maybe start the vocal scene with the lavalier, which I used on set, and then segue into the big studio microphone. So that was one of the great transitionary things that we did for it. We also did all these great Foley tracks for Gary. I tried to do, my goal is always to give post-production as much as I can give them. And I love hiding microphones. We'll put microphones, my team, like uh, Jerry and Terrence, they are running microphones. If they see a sound, we have four microphones that are rigged just to go get sound effects. If we see a car over there, it's like run over and get that car. If there's kids playing over there, they throw one over there to get that. So we're always laying down all these tracks, which Brian has had to, you know, mercilessly, mercifully go through. Um, but then also one of the things we'll do is we'll try to do a, a Foley, a Foley track that's in sync with the music. So for instance, after the big dance scene in the gym, we had, we gave all the actors headphones and, and little earpieces and had them do the entire scene over again so we could capture all their dance steps, all their little yells to each other um, and the actual ambience of the place. So it really gives you like an in-sync Foley track that now you can bring in. And we try to record it with a lot of different microphones with different perspectives so that, so that really gives Gary and Andy as much artillery as possible. And that's, that's really my goal is to give them really as much as I possibly can and obviously do everything as clean as we can. So we double, you know, everybody was wired all the time. We boomed everybody all the time. Um, people wore earwigs. So just one of the other things quickly is that Steven would want to go from, if we were doing a scene, he would want to start and he would, he would do the first couple takes to playback. And then he would say, okay, I want to go live. 
So transitioning on set to go from playback to live is a whole different thing. So it would be the back to the earpieces in, microphone placement and all of that. And we had it down to like within two minutes, we could go, okay, we'd go from playback to a live and then go back to playback again or whatever Stephen wanted. So it was always, always on our toes, always, you know, trying to create answers and always trying to get the best tracks, you know, and as many tracks as possible. That is truly amazing. So then uh, Brian and Gary, you know, so you're, you're getting all this stuff in and you've got, you've got pre-records, you've got live on set singing, you've got pre-record lip sync on set. It, it sounds like just as a, an extraordinary amount of material to kind of get through. And I'm just talking about obviously the, the, the musical numbers. Yeah, Brian, Brian, did, Brian, yeah. luckily Brian dealt with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it was, it was me and it was Marshall Wynn and it was Rich Quinn and Marilyn McCoppin. I mean, we had a great dialogue team that really were able to go through all this stuff and, and organize it. And it was, you never, there was never a situation where you couldn't find what you were looking for in Todd's tracks, right? It was just like, it was like you, you knew it was there. It was just, you just had to find it sometimes because there was a lot. Um, but man, it was so, everything was so well organized and so easy to work through. It really is a pleasure to work with, with what Todd does. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just having the time to go through and do it. So Brian and Gary, you guys are co-sound supervisors and obviously Gary, you're the, you're the re-recording mixer. Uh, presumably you, you focused on sound effects and Foley and, and the re-recording. Um, how do you guys uh, collaborate and what's what's the what's the nature of the swim lanes between the two of you? Well, in our case, it breaks down, you know, in terms of focusing on the track, Brian is dialogue ADR and and and, and I do focus on the sound effects and and fully. Um, and then together, we kind of put together our our, our crew. Um, so that's that's a nice way to to break it down. So I do the uh, the non pretty part of the soundtrack. <laughs> and, um, um, but yeah, and it was great. It's a great collaboration to kind of because you know the this movie was so with what Todd was talking about. I I think the most remarkable thing in this movie is you never for one second don't believe that the singing you're hearing or the acting you're hearing is not happening on that set. It feels completely believable at every time. It seamlessly goes in and out of the music, and it's a uh, it's just a, a wonder. I've never heard a musical be that seamless before i think that's one of the great achievements of of this particular movie um and that's you know and my my part was try to to add the um i guess what i what i find interesting about this movie is it does combine kind of a, a naturalistic realistic style which is what i could bring with ambiences and sound effects and the stylistic style of singing which is not natural and um you know the music which is not natural and i like that combination of kind of the the gritty natural side to it and the uh, ephemeral musical stylized side to it. I, I love that combination in this movie. I'm glad that you brought that up because it, it was something I wanted to ask you guys about. I feel like there's always in movie musicals kind of this tension between, you know, you know, m movies and cinema, which is a very literal, you know, you've got real actors and real sets in real, you know, doing real things. And then suddenly they break into song and there can be this sort of like, Attention, but I never felt that with West Side Story. And so uh, it's just a remarkable achievement, obviously, starting with Mr. Spielberg and then the performances that he captured, but also through the every aspect of the of the sound work. And I wanted to ask you, Gary, sort of about tone. Um, you know, Sean was talking earlier about the about the 61 version and it's 70 millimeter and it, it starts with those 
beautiful overhead helicopter shots of the west side of New York City. Obviously, they're iconic. And I don't want to knock that movie at all because I, I grew up loving it. But obviously, this movie takes a very different approach. And so I, I wanted, uh, Gary, if you could just talk to us about the opening of the movie and the tone and how you use sound design to set the, the tone for this world that we're going to spend the next two hours in. Well, so much of what succeeds, I think, in the uh, in this movie was set up from the from the script, from the this this the story that Spielberg and Tony Kushner put together. And one of the changes they came up, one of the details they came up with, was to start with uh, a demolition. So you know, the first image we have is of the the neighborhood that's going to become Lincoln Center being demolished. So you set up that these you know these our characters are living in a part of New York City that's going away. Um, and it feels, it just adds this great tension. And it's great for me because, you know, the first sounds I get to do is not just city, but a city getting knocked down, old building, buildings getting knocked down, wrecking balls and such. Um, and as my, and it, it gave me a great opportunity later on to, when we're in uh, Rita Moreno's shop uh, with Tony, we hear, you know, demolition going on outside the window. We never see it again, actually, after the first scene. But you know it's there. You know that there's this undercurrent of the world, you know, underfoot is disappearing. Um, so that was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant idea. So generally, my job was to make it feel like 1957 New York, but a certain part of 1957 New York that was undergoing change. Um, and I, at the same time, and I'll point out one of the um, both difficulties and fun things for a sound effects person to work in a musical. Is, so I get to do wrecking balls right in the beginning of this movie is great but there's also this iconic music happening which is very in the beginning the opening is very got some holes in it and other but it's got little detailed percussion and stuff you want to hear so i've got to do wrecking ball deconstruction and still get out of the way of the music so that was the challenge for me for the whole movie was to put in the reality of the city but work within the rhythm and the sound of the music so i don't get in its way yeah, and I think one of the things you also, Gary, is that like even in the very beginning when they're tossing paint cans, you know, as they're doing everything, there was so much of this movie that was choreographed and sound and sound effects follow that choreography like that. Um, yeah, they would wear earwigs like all the time on set so we could try to capture as many as we could on set. And then Gary would obviously recreate, you know, everything that we couldn't get there. And but a lot of those sounds are are choreographed. Yeah, the, ry the rhythm of the action is really important. We actually micro, even in the final, you know, we had uh, Steve Bissinger, who was our, sort of our lead sound effects editor, even up to the very end of the final, he would micro synchronize our sound effects so that they worked with the music. Um, so that, you know, those paint cans and other things throughout the movie, everything was just aligned like that. Well, that was a great thing about Steve as well, because he's an effects, he's a musician as well as a really great musician, as well as an effects editor. So he could bring the musicality to his editing and really, really made it special. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, Sean and Todd, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the the pre-records because it seems like that's such a huge um, element uh, of West Side Story in particular. And one of the, one of the questions I had when, when I'm watching this film is I, I know that there's, you know, Andy's doing this kind of amazing job of diving back and forth between, live singing and pre-records, but then you've, you've got a song like Cool, which is these characters really like, you know, playing keep away with a gun and they're running and jumping and kind of bouncing all over the place. And so how do you pre-record that on a, you know, presumably on a, on a, you know, a very 
antiseptic music, you know, a sound environment in a, in a, in a recording stage, but kind of have that essence of the performance so that you enable Andy to be able to move back and forth between what he's going to cap, what you captured live on the set versus the pre-record. Yeah. Well, they, you know, uh, Todd's already mentioned that we recorded, uh, all, all of the vocals with multiple microphones. Uh, and we, we were and just like Todd said, we were careful to, to use similar, uh, or the same boom mic and lavalier mics along with a studio mic. Uh, knowing that, you know, uh, there wasn't just one pre-record session. Uh, there, a lot of these songs were recorded multiple times. And, and, and what I have to do is, is mention our, our vocal producer, Janine Tesori, uh, as part of this, because Janine trained all these actors. She, she was in on the audition process. And she uh, trained trained all the vocalists, and and I think got great performances out of out of all of them. These actors are singing their own parts. There's no there's nobody singing uh, for them other uh, like they're in the previous uh, West Side Story. So, so they, so the performances had to be good, and we knew that in Cool, which is a very complicated number, both musically and cinematically. Uh, that, you know, we're going to be, a, it's going to be a combination. It's going to be some studio mics. A lot of production is going to be mixed in and it, and it's going to be handed to Andy in a, in a kind of a checkerboard uh, system where he gets to choose once he looks at the picture and decides what to use. Obviously a lot of the shouting, a lot of the motion, a lot of the vocals uh, had to come from, from production. Uh, they, they couldn't really be pre-recorded. Uh, although the melodic material possibly could be. Uh, and we had a we had an editor working with us in the music department, uh, David Channing, who who put together the vocals really in just a kind of wonderfully artistic way, where he would he would build these checkerboards of, of different sources, uh, both from pre-records and from production, so that we could give then give it to to uh, the music editors and to Brian for for the final dub, and they would have the the best choices for for uh, putting the number together. Uh, yeah, complicated. And, and, uh, certainly, you know, you think of pre-records just going into the studio for one take. Some of these songs were pre-recorded uh, a half a dozen times or more before we got the final performances that were going to be the, the best to use. And there was a lot of rehearsal. I mean, Stephen did a ton of rehearsal. I would sit in on those rehearsals and they would work out the timing of everything. And then that was actually the first scene that we shot of the movie. So that was my introduction to Steven Spielberg filming was cool and cool encompassed everything from every element of playback to earwigs to wirelesses to booming to effects to everything was in that whole piece i'm like okay this is what i'm in for strap on 78 days of go <laughs> and it was yeah cool was was literally very cool to do because it did um i mean for a start it was mainly a choreography that was the thing that was great about it so it started off um, with the guys all settling down, uh, Ansel was 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 uh, speaking, and and became started to sing. So the thing was that it, it, like all the other sequences, he'd been recorded naturally on set up to the point when we went into the playback for for his vocal. Sometimes we were in a live situation onto the vocal. Sometimes we were in a playback, depending. This one I think was in a playback situation, if I remember rightly, and. Um, um, but again, with the microphone choices, I was able to always utilize exactly the same microphone that had been used in the dialogue sequence up to that point in time. The studio mic, the fat studio mic was really obviously more for the sort of album sound, if you like. But obviously what I was always relying on was the lavaliers or the shotgun uh, boom mic, which uh, whichever worked to match in perfectly 
and um, but uh, but there was only a couple of um, lines of sung in call because then it goes into a dance. So again, the atmosphere that was created when we first cut to the to the guys running down to to start that scene, Gary Rystrom had already brilliantly created the sounds of the water and the, the, the just the air, the openness of the and the wind blowing. Um, the, the sheets blowing, things like that, that all created that lovely sound. Then when they got onto the wharf area, of course, there was the, the floor, you know, the, the creakiness of the, the wood floor. And the, um, so it was a question of never letting that die just because vocals came in. It kept, we kept it very strong and full, knowing that it was going to go into a full-on choreography piece. And um, with, it, with the, but it was interspersed with some shouted words here and there from, from the original takes on production. Um, but it was just a great, it was just a great dance piece, really, in the end of the day. It was just about getting that threat and the feeling of the, the guys throwing the gun back and forward between themselves and almost teasing Tony at times, you know, but keeping it, um, it, it, it had an edge to it. And I loved it. And it built and built musically and then went down to very, very quiet right at the very end when they basically uh, all left him one by one at the very end of the sequence. So it had this wonderful build of very quiet at the beginning, full on dance, loud music, back down to a very, very quiet end, which um, I thought was a wonderful piece, yeah. And one thing Andy had time, Andy fought hard for was time to premix the vocals and premix the music, which is usually we don't have time for. Um, and so we did our dialogue premix, and then immediately into that, he went into his, basically his vocal premix. And so he was premixing the vocals right into the dialogue, uh, you know, to make it, that's really how he was able to, you know, have the time to make it as seamless as it was. And I'll get, I'll get one more thing. I'll get delivered to me on set because I'm playing the vocals back to the actors. Um, normally, um, you know, music, music pre-records, they want to add a little reverb in, they want to sweeten them up a little bit in that. And I have them take all of that out. So I get dry tracks on set which enables me to match as best that I can to what it sounds like in the pre-records. So I can reverse, you know, back end it that way where I can try to match the pre-records as well as they're trying to match me. Right. Well, you can imagine these pre-record sessions, which we built uh, in New York, uh, like, like for America or for, uh, uh, for cool, you know, uh, sessions involving, you know, 60 to a hundred tracks of pre-records, uh, that, that then, you know, Todd will kind of whittle through and decide what, what is best going to work for them to perform to. So, yeah, complicated uh, pre-record sessions. Todd, it sounds like you must have spent hundreds of hours in preparation for almost every hour that you spent on set recording, you know, in, in production. It just sounds like a, a staggering amount of work. I, I want to ask you, I, I, I love this sequence so much. Talk to me about America and recording that and being on the, you know, on the street on the day and what, a, what an extraordinary number. Hey, hey, hey. 
I mean, from the filming of its side, it was really pretty much all playback, you know, because we had so many dancers and we had so much life on the streets. One of the things in New York is you're restricted by sound levels. So we would use up to 20 small speakers on wire, battery powered small speakers that we would hide all over the place because you can't just blast the music like the old days. You know, now you have to like really kind of confine it. But now we're doing these big scene, you know, these big dance numbers, you know, with 50, 100 dancers and surrounding them with sound as much as we can. But the energy was just incredible. You know, I mean, it is the, you know, it's one of the drivers in the movie, but to see it in real life and to see all that and their dancing and the quality of dancing and the energy of the song was just amazing. I mean, I can only imagine what the recordings were like. Well, I, I'll say that during the mix, Brian will remember, I think we watched that scene more than any other scene. In some ways, it was kind of a pick-me-up, like, yeah, you know, and Steve would say, why don't we watch America? So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, you know, amphetamine to, uh, if you're working on something, just watch that scene, you kind of, you know, kickstart yourself and, you know, get in back into your job, into the movie, because it was so, it was just thrilling to watch. It was so nicely, I mean, Justin Peck, the choreographer and the, the costumes, you know, the color of the costumes, yeah, uh, just um, it was a it was a fun scene to uh, to uh, to do. It was a fun scene to watch over and over again because it it gave us energy. You know, in the pre-records, more than more than any other, uh, you know, you have to hear every word of that piece. You know that that's one where the there's a lot of storytelling going on. Uh, so when we were editing and and mixing uh, pre-mixing the pre-records to give to Andy, we wanted to make sure we had everything's super clear and, and uh, well-balanced and uh, so that the track worked well with the vocals because you don't want to, you just can't cover up the words in, uh, on that one. Now, another thing that you do also to help to help make it sound real is in those pre-records, staying with the actors and reminding them what they're physically doing in the scene. Because if they're dancing or fighting or doing something in that scene, it should sound like that. There should be that kind of energy. It shouldn't just be standing in front of a, in front of a mic in a studio. There should be that kind of energy behind it. So it's really important to keep that, you know, always in their mind while they're doing these vocal pre-records. That, that scene has one of my favorite moments of synchronizing the action on the scene with the music. When Anita starts to sing America, she's pulling a laundry line. And the pulling of the laundry line is in perfect sync, thanks to earwigs and everything else, to what she's singing. And so we put our, our sounds in our little squeaky laundry line almost becomes part of the rhythm section of the of the song. I just, you know, I, I relish those things. There were so many of those. You had you had so many, Gary. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we enjoyed that. Yeah. Because again, once they're once they're ending in the city, and there's the whole everything comes to life around them, right? That that we that Gary and our Foley team added, and even like Loop Group when they're going through the the market, the Puerto Rican market. You know, there's so all these little beats of the city alive behind them in in America. That's really Gary. I always love talking with you about tone. Um, it's one of the, it's one of my, one of my favorite things. And I, I think you, you, you approach your work as, as a, a director, because of course you have been an, uh, a very successful director in the past. And I think you, you really think of it as a, as a storyteller. And I want to ask you about the rumble. Um, the rumble is, it's, it's shocking when the scene comes in and it's shocking because it needs to be, it's a very, it's a very disturbing, violent, uh, uh, scene. And then we go into I feel pretty. So I, I I was really curious about your approach to like, how did you thread the needle of having the rumble be as impactful as it needed to be, but not going too far because you can't capsize this ship. 
you know, because you you got the audience is going to go on a pretty big tonal shift in the next scene. It is more violent than other versions of that we've seen in the past. Um, because you believe it, it has the realism of a of a movie, and you believe the punches and the knife fight are really happening. Um, also, brilliant. Um, like a lot of things, we depend on decisions made before we start. So the salt shed location was a great, um, great location. Is the 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 emptiness of it, the 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 salt, which almost looked like snow. The car lights going by in the windows, which gave us a chance for, you know, sort of the city going outside. But we had this isolated space with this big echo reverberation possible in it um and you know so we treated the sound effects for that very realistically it was a, it was a real movie fight with knives and punches and things and and also made use of the fact that in this story bernardo is a professional boxer and tony nearly killed a guy and went to jail so he got okay these two guys can fight when <laughs> right but, yeah. but the tone is important you're right it's i mean if, if it was choreographed as kind of in the 61 movie, the fight is, it feels almost like a dance fight. Then you would have, I would have done different kind of fight sounds, but this is a realistic fight the way it's shot. So they're realistic punches. we actually worked a lot on the sound of the punches. So you don't go too far. You find the right thing. That's brutal, but not, not Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? It's not exaggerated. What saves us in some ways for, from it being, because you're right, we're going to I Feel Pretty, which I'll point out in the stage version of this, if I understand it right, the intermission came between the rumble and I Feel Pretty, so you had time to... The audience kind of, of decompress you after decompress the rumble. You decompress from the killings, and then you come into this exuberant beginning of the second second act. Uh, we didn't have that. So, But what I think what makes it work tonally is the music, the, the Bernstein music during, you know, when, when Bernardo's being punched and nearly killed, the music is incredibly violent and I'm doing a realistic punch, but the music is still telling us that stylistically, this is a musical. This is, this is bigger than life. And so, and then the music, as it always does, it then it resolves into church bells and the church bells, I think become really important to take us out of, out of this and just let us kind of soak in what just happened. And I like that. I feel pretty followed. We, we struggled with the sound transition to make sure it wasn't abrupt, and we took out the reality sounds and let the church bells cover, take us into the into the department store scene. Um, but I like that. I feel pretty now has this undercurrent of they don't know what just happened. So I feel pretty, which can be a scene which is some people think you know just kind of light and artificial, but it had this undercurrent to me that I thought was really effective because it was so close to that tonally brutal fight. And I, I find that I feel pretty works great uh, coming right on the heels of the rumble. I, I, I enjoyed that undercurrent of dread. In terms of the rumble itself, uh, the biggest component that was added to that, um, which was just the fact that the exterior uh, car buys were added in, um, even though you see the lights, they were, they were played fairly soft, but actually in the end, Stephen wanted them quite quite intrusive. And that was really interesting because it gave an extra tension to the scene for sure. And um, again, in that sequence, even though the music that comes in is not a sung piece, it, uh, therefore it would be considered background music. We never played it like that. We played it as if it was full on score, exactly the same way as if you were sitting in the theater watching a performance, um, which I think helped in some ways with the tone because it, it, well, first of all, it kept it in West Side Story vein completely, but it allowed for it to be fairly intense and strong with the, the struggle and the hits and the impacts because the music was so strong. Um, 
So then we go through to the end where, the, where, where they all leave and run out. And we get quieter and quieter, of course. And what, what we did um, was, was take the atmospheres down to, to almost nothing. So that, very, so that by the time uh, the police arrive and they walk in, it's almost silent. And we ended up with this, there's just a church bell that rings across the sequence. And the idea was that, that would just take us into the next scene because yes, it's, it's a transition into a very different tone. But we felt that the quieter we could make the end of the sequence in the salt warehouse, that, 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 that it would help that transition to go through a little bit smoother and, and help the tone to change. We also go into a little bit of dialogue sequence, which helps before the singing. So I think there's enough time to, to um, you know, sort of relax and realize that you're now rejoining Maria, who has no idea of what's just gone on. And um, in some ways, even though it's a tonal shift, you, you buy the fact that she's oblivious to this and it's just in her own world. And um, I think, I hope we achieve that by, by making the end of the soul warehouse so quiet and um, powerful in many ways, just to see those two bodies with virtual silence. So that, that was that was our approach. Todd, I think one of the questions I have for you, one of the things that I find remarkable about your work as the production sound mixer is that you end up having such a, a remarkably intimate relationship with the actors. Uh, you and your team are working very, very closely with them. And, and in some ways, like you know, you're putting microphones on them right when they're about to go on to, you know, to do their most emotional, maybe even show-stopping piece. So I, I, want, I just wanted to ask you about that aspect of your work. And maybe if you can talk about that in, in, in terms of, of Rita Moreno and her amazing performance uh, on Somewhere uh, and how you, how you navigate that very important part of your job. It is a really important job, you know, part of the job, sorry, because it, you know, you're dealing with big personalities and it's part of what I really like. It's probably 50% of what I really like about the business on my side of it is because I am in the middle of it, you know, even those cold nights and all of that, you know, where I'm questioning it, but, um, <laughs> but I am in the middle of it and I do get to see all the personalities and all of the interesting things that go on behind camera. And to me, that's 50% of it. It's always fascinating because you're dealing with such huge personalities and, and when you, and when you do wire someone, and even when you're talking about their singing and you're talking about, um, um, different sound things with them, whatever you have to talk about, but particularly the wiring of them is a very intimate moment. I mean, you have to put that pack on them and it's got to go somewhere. Back probably 10 years ago when we didn't wire everybody for every single scene, I would go to their trailers and I would go and stand there and go in with the wardrobe person and it would be a 10 minute affair each time, you know, to go through and wire them and talk them through it and all of that. Now we do it as fast as we can on set because now we wire everybody. So now we really run them through as fast as we can. So the great thing also with working with like new people, like, like a lot of the actors from West Side Story, they're just thrilled to be there. You know, they don't care what the process is. They were like, run us through whatever you do. And we literally would wire them in 45 seconds. You know, I'd have the three of us would take them like NASCAR. It was like, it was like a pit lane. They would come through, we'd drop the pack down. I would, I always plant the microphone because to me, half of what, or 80% of what I do is microphone placement. You know, if you get the microphone in the right place, 
it's going to sound good. If you don't get the microphone in the right place, no matter how you record it, it's not going to sound good. So it's all about that. So I'm the one who always puts the microphone on. Um, and, and also the one that talks to them, you know, at that moment, if we're singing, you know, here's what we need to do. And then when you do other scenes where there's a lot of background noise, for instance, if you're shooting in a bar or something on a normal scene, you know, you, you don't want all that noise going on when you're filming. So you play it all in the very beginning for all the rehearsals and all that. And I'll talk to the actors and say, look, this is how it's really going to sound, but you're going to be tempted to talk a lot quieter because we're going to have everybody be quiet when we actually film it. So just to keep that level up, you have to get that trust, you know, from them. So a lot of it is, it's a personal relationship and it's really a lot of what I really like about it. The, 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 the somewhere moment you talked about Glenn is, is one of the moments where it's live singing too. So that's really Rita Moreno in the, in the, at the time, the way she sounded, the way that Todd Mike her—that's that's that's why, in some ways, that's why it works so well because the acting is so good because that's what she did on the set at that time. Yeah, and she's she's such a pro. You know, when you approach her, you know, she knows exactly what you need to do, and she knows exactly the reason why you know it needs to be perfect. And that was really a mix between between a wireless and a boom on that. So the beginning of it starts on a wireless because she was quite far away on one of the cameras. Um, and then she walks towards us. And then it, right when she got to us, we transitioned to the boom. And then we followed her for the rest of the way into the scene. And one of the things I'll always do is I'll keep ambient mics going inside of a space and even outside also. So with that ambient mic, you're able to make that, that wireless give it some distance. You know, you can add some bounce of the room to it. So you can make that wireless sound like it is you know, 40 feet away. And then you, as you, as they come closer, you get rid of the, the ambient sound and stay more with the wireless sound and then make that quick transition to a boom. And it's pretty seamless, you know, which is obviously the idea of everything we want to do. The hardest part about that wasn't so much the mix. It was finding the right tone of the music, which, which took David Newman um, a little while to sort of figure out almost just to kind of come up with, with, with it being as simple as it was, because it didn't, with, with that vocal and with that performance, it didn't require anything very big around it, obviously. It does grow emotionally throughout the song, but it starts very, very quietly. And, and for, for us, I think, for Gary and myself, working with Stephen on that, it was just to present something that was very honest to her and let her be absolutely front and centre, even with the fragility of, of, of the vocal and the sense of and what it was meaning inside the song itself for her to sing it. Um, so it was just a question of, of really calming everything down as much as we possibly could. And you can hear her walking um, clearly on the set. It's coming off of her microphone. We didn't try and, you know, we just wanted to keep it honest as if you were sitting in the front row of a theatre and watching her perform that live. And that was the sense that we wanted to try and get from that. And uh, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful moment for sure. Gary, I wanted to ask you, uh, I think, you know, the day after I saw the movie, I sent you an email and said I was particularly struck by the sound design and the tone of what you were doing at the end of the film on the street outside of Doc's shop, you know, obviously with the big confrontation uh, uh, when with with Tony. I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you were doing, because it was it was very subtle, but it just was so emotional and so moving. Well, it's um, it's a stretch with no music, for one thing, not that, you know, and so I, I got to play. It was in contrast to the rest of the movie, which is this lively New York, and now we're taking place in the dead of night. And so the silence is what's 
interesting. So you hear the steam, you know, things that are they're visually in there, sort of the steam. And I got to, you know, engage my inner Alan Splett and do some um, uh, dangerously tonal um, atmospheric sounds that just made it feel empty. It's, you know, it's just them. There's the rest of New York is asleep if it ever does. And so it is about mood, you know, it's, it's chance for sound effects and ambiences to set mood too. And it was, um, it was just, it, it sounded sad. It sounded tragic. It sounded lonely. Um, cause everyone is kind of apart. Um, uh, so I, I enjoyed that kind of, uh, opportunity. And so, yeah, it, um, but it also it just it was right for the for the feeling of that moment. It was just that was, uh, you know, as you said, this movie changes. I mean, there's a consistent tone, but it changes. It goes it has such a range of you know exuberance to enjoy, like America or I feel pretty, and then rumble. And this is this is truly tragic. Um, and I love using ambiences, you know, off-screen sounds and just simple things that can that, that do what music can do, which is to make you feel something. Yeah, well said. Well, I want to wrap up. Um, uh, you guys have been very generous uh, with your time, but of course, it, uh, you're on the Dolby podcast, so I have to ask uh, your your favorite Dolby Atmos moments in this mix because I, I thought you used Atmos remarkably subtly and effectively in this film. Well, there's a wrecking ball moment right at the beginning. It's kind of subtle, but there's a shot. There's a great shot. You know, one of that great opening shots where you got a wrecking ball kind of lifts up. So and that goes right up there. I put, I use Atmos for things like sirens and thunder. I let automatic for that. Sean recorded with, you know, so you can talk about how you use Atmos to kind of get a sense of the Manhattan Center, the, 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 the sound of the, around the orchestra. We, uh, we knew ahead of time that we wanted to mic uh, the ambient character of the room. And we recorded uh, uh, the New York Philharmonic at Manhattan Center, which is a famous room, uh, 34th Street, and, and uh, used a lot for orchestral recording. And it's a great sounding room. So we, we had, you know, top rear surround mics uh, up for all of, all of the orchestral sessions. And I think the idea wasn't to make it very obvious, but to make it uh, enveloping and to give uh, Andy the chance to kind of uh, expand and contract the sound of the orchestra depending on the scene. And I think it was very effective. I think, you know, I, I, I don't think many people listening to to an Atmos uh, playback of the film would realize that there's a lot going on in the tops and rears and sides, but that, that it, it does affect your sense of the size of the orchestra and the, and the space of the orchestra. And uh, and maybe it compensates a little bit for that old uh, the nineteen sixty one sixty two version being where the orchestra itself was just too big and massive and and congested that we were able to make the space around our orchestra sound bigger uh, uh, selectively. So I think it worked well for that. Uh, and I think approaching it from the standpoint of actually having microphones up that picked that up, we didn't have to phony up the pickup. It was, it's, it's the real pickup of the room and the orchestra. So the beauty of doing a musical is that when the music's there, uh, very much so in this case with this film, it's front and center. It's never a question of underscore, which, you know, when you're, when you're mixing a traditional dramatic movie, the music can be loud at times. It can be very soft at times. It can be, it can be very quiet underneath dialogue. And therefore you're, you know, you're, kind of creating a world that, that works for that scenario. When you're dealing with a musical like this, when that music plays, it plays, and that's the fun of it. So what I was very happy to do with this one 
um, more than any was to utilize all of Sean's expertise in creating the stems that would give me that flexibility. So quite often when I have um, material, for instance, that's for overhead mics, overhead speakers uh, in an Atmos, uh, sometimes I don't always use them or I'll keep them down a little bit because sometimes they can have a slightly monitoring effect, oddly enough, but also um, maybe the music has to be a little, play a little bit more of a background feel within the sequence. In this movie, it never played a background. So I was just loving everything that Sean gave me from the um, all the stems, the Atmos stems, because I could play them and I played them full out. And I, I utilized the corner speakers. I, I, I increased the width of the screen um, to utilize the corner speakers in Atmos again, um, but leaving the percussion, for instance, on the screen. So really I ended up with almost like a five channel music mix across the screen. And then of course, the full Atmos arrays side and back with the overheads. Um, and uh, I mean, that's it. I mean, he gave me the material that was stunning to use and, and I used it. The, uh, what, uh, what, let me point out with the music, what you don't, you, you're not looking up and going, you know, oh, there's music coming up. But what happened, we print master. So we get to the end. Here's a, here's a little sound detail. We print master. We were used to hearing Atmos. Then we go down to our, you know, 5171 smaller print masters. We all go, oh, because <laughs> it, it, you know, Andy's doing these things. He's widening the front, and then we got the top, and it's just it goes from this space to this space, and you go, there's some, there's 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 a magic to space and sound, you know. That's that's what we listen for. Yeah, I always actually I try, you know, with all these you know different microphones and then capturing different sounds. I, I do that with Atmos in mind. You know, with the idea, if I can put them all on isolated tracks, you know, that then they can maybe be pinpointed, you know, however, you know, however, you know, the guys see it fit. But it's kind of my contribution to Atmos. But I really actually really do think about Atmos when I am recording. That's great. Yeah, yeah you're you're giving uh, the, the mixing team maximum possibilities to use that or not use that as the story dictates. Right. Brian, what about you? Favorite Atmos moment? I, to me, it's, I mean, I hate to be, this is the cheesy answer in a way, but the whistles at the very beginning. I mean, it's, it's such a fun way to start the film. Um, it put a smile on Steven's face every time he heard it, you know? Uh, and just as a technical side of things, it always, troubleshooting wise, I would always know if Atmos was working because it was like, okay, the very first sound we're hearing is an Atmos moment. Like, okay, cool. We're, we're good. Yeah. Steven was very much into, we, you know, we first, Andy first did the the whistles and what spread out into the sides, just spread out along the sides. But we ended up pinpointing it in the way that Atmos allows you to down the side walls, so the whistles come from very discrete locations in the theater. It's very important to Stephen uh, from the get go. The idea of starting with the whistles was was genius because Stephen wanted that sense of the lights would go down essentially and and what i thought was really cool about it was that you felt enveloped right from the very beginning you knew exactly what you were in for when you heard that opening whistle and the fun thing was because it's a call and response we thought well we'll start by having it one side of the room and the response can be on the other side of the room so um i tried it with the with the normal speakers and then Stephen said to me how how narrow can we make the range so i narrowed it down a little bit and he said what about one speaker. And I said, you know what, because we're in Dolby Atmos, we can do one speaker. So I literally fine tuned it down to just coming out of one single speaker on the left, the call, the first call, and then the response 
one single speaker over on the right. And then I, obviously after that, I started to move it around a little bit once the background ambiences started to come in and we put one down near the front and then one I think I put right at the very back. Um, and it was such a treat to do. It took quite a while to do, oddly enough. It sounds simple, but it took a while. And Stephen and I went through it a few times to try and just get it exactly the way um, he wanted it to be. But that was the benefit of Dolby Atmos, 100%. And obviously I was aware that once we switched to a different format, it wouldn't have quite that precision feel to the whistle. But it still works really well in 5.1 as well. And there's no question about it. It, it. You get a sense. And I've had a lot of reaction, oddly, from people that have said that from that very first whistle, they felt like they were in that world right from the beginning. And uh, that's a really treat to hear people say that. Um, and then obviously once the backgrounds come in and we realize that we're, we're looking at the demolition basically and all the different sounds, but, but in, in the middle of that is always those little threads of the percussion coming in, the whistles, the response, a little more percussion. And then of course the orchestra starts to join in and we reveal the guys so it was a really great sequence to play with and it took us a while to do to get it the way it is but i was very happy with it uh, you know it was a remarkably effective way to start that movie i remember very clearly uh i saw it at the zanuck theater on the fox lot which is a dolby atmos room and the, those whistles start and i just the hair on the back of my neck stood up and i felt like oh i'm in this space and i'm where this thing is happening and it was incredibly effective well, uh, gentlemen, any 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 last thoughts? Anything else uh, that you would like to cover that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I will say that it's it's so. I mean, we were talking earlier about how Sean is involved and Todd, and and I feel like we were so close, closer than any other film, um, in regards to how we all worked together during production, and you know, collaborating with Sean is something that we never really get to do when he's a scoring mixer, and we were doing that on this and. Communicating with Todd, you know, from the get-go was wonderful, and um, it's just been such a great experience. You're absolutely right, Brian. I mean, they, films now, we hardly ever talk, you know, production and post-production. So many films I start, they haven't hired the post-production team yet, you know, so I'm pretty much determining everything, you know, what we're going to do. And I just find that it's a real big void, and it's something, you know, I get it, you know, because of timing, but I think it's a shame. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about West Side Story. It's, uh, uh, it's, I think it's a remarkable film and incredible work uh, on the soundtrack from all of you. So congratulations on your well-deserved Academy Award nomination. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, guys. Thank you once again to Gary, Sean, Brian, Todd, and Andy for speaking with us today about West Side Story. You can stream this new version of West Side Story in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos starting on March 2nd on Disney Plus and HBO Max. You can check out our show notes for links to that. But before you go, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. In the coming weeks, we are going to bring you more of our Academy Awards coverage, including our individual episodes devoted to entire categories like best sound and best cinematography. And in the middle of that, we're going to take a slight break and present to you a couple of really exciting conversations with director Matt Reeves and his sound and image team focusing on the upcoming new film, The Batman. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. 
I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.